There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Ruler podcast. As we freewheel through the final week of the Tour de France, at the time of recording we find ourselves with at least three potential winners. Riders being tear-gassed by French police, albeit unintentionally, and Gary Imlach forsaking his dark polo shirts for bright multicoloured sweaters. As Sir Bradley Wiggins so rightly says, there do appear to be sinister forces at work behind the scenes. This isn't the first year that some tour spectators have booed and insulted Team Sky riders and staff, but it's certainly been more noticeable. Rouleur's Hannah Troop was on the Alpe d'Huez on stage 12 and recorded some of the anti-Sky reaction. Uh, so Hannah, we heard some um, anti-Sky chanting there on Alpe d'Huez. Uh, was there much of that during the time that you were out there watching the racing? There wasn't a huge amount, to be fair, actually. The only times that it really ever arose was if a team car was going past that was obviously brought from Sky. I mean, it really did crescendo when Chris Froome and, and Geraint Thomas came round, obviously, but that was kind of expected, I guess. But And even when I asked fans who... Uh, were booing about it. I think it was almost they weren't really sure. Kind of, they just it was a bit more like getting involved with it. I think. <laughs> um, so Dave Brailsford appeared to be uh, very put out about the crowd behaviour at the rest day press conference, suggesting at one point it all seemed to be some sort of French national characteristic. But when you spoke to Sky performance manager Rod Ellingworth, um, he was much more relaxed about it. I mean, it's been getting better. I think there was a bit of hostility at the beginning wasn't it but it's been fine actually you know there's it, I don't think it's any any different to all the years to be honest yeah from watching it from the tv actually yeah. it feels like it's been okay um, yeah it has I mean I mean it, and, and genuinely it has as well I mean I've been in different positions in the race as in ahead of the race behind the race in the race in the race cars and it and it's just yeah it's, it's, it's not bad at all actually yeah yeah and, it, and the riders aren't complaining so how does Chris kind of talk to the guys about it and fine nobody's, nobody's talking about it I mean we're you know I think they're just getting on with their job and yeah yeah so it's, I mean it's again I think it's one of them where you know some media have copped hold of it and making it a bigger thing than it actually is so it, it, we're just sort of telling the truth to say it's actually been fine, you know. So Rod Ellingworth uh, taking a slightly more uh, conciliatory line on crowd behaviour than his boss. But generally, what was it like on um, Alpe d'Huez? Because they put crowd control ropes up for the first time this year. Yeah, so we, as we drove up, uh, myself and another um, journalist, we drove up in the morning to go and park up at the top of the mountain. And it actually felt there was people around, but it didn't feel quite as much 
uh, or as many crowds as what there has been on, on previous year. That was definitely something that was noted between us. And then as we came down to go make a sort of like the pilgrimage per se down to Dutch Corner, you could definitely feel like things were starting to ramp up. And this was about three o'clock in the afternoon. So it was a couple of hours before the tour came in and people were definitely starting to get a little bit more boozy and it was definitely starting to get more more shouty but in a good way and of course when uh, the race actually reached dutch corner one of their own stephen kroiswick was actually in the lead special because you can almost touch the the the, the sporters yeah, but you're not meant to. No, <laughs> almost, but, no, but we can. the idea that you could, yeah. that's enough. So we now have a bit of a situation where some of the some of the Dutch are already starting to try and sneakily get over the barrier, the other side of the barrier. Uh, the gendarmes and, and organisers are already trying to tell them to move back and, and stay behind the ropes. Some Dutch courage in this corner, that's for sure. Just Stephen Kreisweig going past the Dutch corner, still out in the lead, with about six kilometres left to go. Dutch corner, and I'm Dutch, so uh, it could be better. And so what did you think about them putting the barriers, the ropes around? Ah, they're great. Well, we are no, no, no football hooligans, so we, we keep us uh, quietly. Well, you're now the other side of the barrier anyway, so... Yeah, sure, but they allow us, but we, we don't bother the, the cyclists. This is my first time. I, I dreamt it for years, but now I, uh, I did it. And what do you think of it so far? Ah, great. If you've caught any of the Eurosport coverage of the race so far, specifically the Bradley Wiggins show, you'll also probably have caught up uh, with our next guest, Molly Weaver, uh, formerly of Sunweb and Track Drops, now on a break from pro cycling. Um, Molly, uh, so far, how have you been enjoying this year's tour? Uh, yeah, I found it really exciting, actually. I think there's been parts of it where there's been a bit of drama outside the race, which also always adds a bit of excitement. But I think it's been really well raced and it's good to see a new protagonist in the GC fight. And how have you found uh, sort of following it and being on the other side of the media this year? How's that felt? Uh, yeah, it's been a bit weird. I think I've probably followed it more than I ever have before, but also just in more depth and you've had to research stuff where maybe... As a rider, I wouldn't have been so interested in before, so actually I know a lot more about it than I ever have. How has that felt? Have you enjoyed it? Uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed it, actually. Yeah, again, just a bit strange, especially with the, actually when I did the women's stuff, because it's talking about people you know really well, so it feels a bit odd to be like formal within, analysing stuff. But um, no, so far I've really enjoyed it, yeah. How was um, Bradley Wiggins when you appeared with him? Yeah, he's been great, actually. Um, I didn't really know what to expect. I'd never met him before when I first went for the first podcast. But he's, yeah, really, it's been really easygoing and relaxed. And yeah, he's been really nice. It's, it's just worked quite smoothly. We met each other. We saw each other at La Course last week. Um, what were your views on La Course this year? I think as a standalone race, it was like, it was a massively exciting race. One of the best I've seen all year, actually, men or women, um, in terms of one day racing. I think there's still a lot of, muttering a lot of debate about whether it should be a stage race and whether it's progressing enough and I kind of think at this point we're all almost fighting the same war but we're all fighting different battles so some people are just fixated on this women's tour de France idea and it being a stage race and I'm not sure if it ever actually will be or that's even feasible alongside the men's race or whether we should really use it as a platform to 
to then promote our own races, I think maybe that's a more realistic option for it. I was interviewing some of the other riders that day. And like you said, it is a bit of a mixed bag on what people want. But I was quite surprised at how many people, especially Annemiek van Vluten, saying that she actually didn't think that it should be a multi-stage race. When I rode it, so when I was purely a rider, I'd have been firmly on the side of give us a stage race. This should be a stage race. It should be more than one day. Uh, now, having been on the other side and being with a, trying to cover it, so they're with the Eurosport team trying to make that happen and seeing the logistics and and the feasibility of it, I think in reality, it's it's actually it's not something that I, don't, I think is possible um, on an organizational level. So I think it's a case of working like with the best thing we have, which is this massive platform to promote our sport effectively. Uh, the Giro Rosa was really exciting this year, but inevitably it gets overshadowed by the fact that it's on at the same time as the men's race, doesn't it? It's, it uh, again, uh, that that seems to be yet another sort of obstacle that gets put in, in the way of, of women's racing. It always clashing with the Tour de France. I think even if they did make it, you know, covered, covered it way more and made, made it much more like promoted and that kind of thing i think it's always going to be in the shadow of it it's the biggest sporting event in the world i think even another men's race is is forgotten when the tour de france is on um but i think it's it's a case of with that race the history of it means that it's still for us and for the public seen as the biggest stage for women it's our most like iconic and historical but actually having raced that and raced other ones it's it's actually one of the poorest organized and one of the worst covered and i think we're kind of clinging on to that history of the race when actually maybe what we should be doing is investing in those that are moving towards the future rather than just staying in the past model of how they always did it. And Molly, you're on what you describe as a hiatus from uh, riding at the moment, and you've been very honest about the reasons behind that. Um, How is that hiatus going for you? Yeah, good, actually. I think it was relatively unplanned, so I did kind of go into this sort of existential crisis where I thought, what am I going to do now? Because I I didn't have a, a firm plan in place. And then these things in the media started to happen and that's something I've really enjoyed. But I, I do have I do have plans to go back. It's not something that, that's never gonna happen. I think at the moment it's looking most likely that I'm gonna take effectively a whole year off and, and then start again next season. This the hiatus, was it kind of a a snowball of effect that happened from the crash that you had last year? Yeah, I think it it was such a slow process that it's almost hard to pinpoint you know, moments things happen, but that was the beginning of it all. I think before then I'd never had any issues with any of this. So I think I'd never had any mental health issues. I'd never really doubted my my career or my what like my wanting to do it, my love of it. Um so that's been that was almost the catalyst of the whole thing happening. But from that point on there were moments where everything was going great. So it wasn't it wasn't a constant downward thing where it just, you know, picked up and picked up. But I think that was definitely the beginning of it all going wrong, yeah. Um, have you been um, surprised by the sort of positive response that you seem to have got from uh, fans, supporters, other people in uh, in cycling? Oh, yeah, I didn't I didn't expect it to, to be quite this, like, well-received. Um, also, like, quite so widely read and, and so, so widely received as well. It was something where it got to the point where I had to say something because people were wondering where I was and I was getting messages every race, like, why aren't you racing, what's happening? Um, and I went back and forth of whether to just put something vague out and just say, okay, I'm taking a break and just leave it, you know, for people to just use their imagination and they could think what they wanted or whether to be really honest with it and just, like, lay it all out there. 
and I decided to go with the honesty. Um, and yeah, I thought, well, okay, a few people will read it and I thought I'd get a mixed response, but I didn't really mind at that point. And then it's just been this overwhelming positivity and it's been nothing but a good experience. Uh, Molly Weaver, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I hope uh, your hiatus continues successfully. I uh, hope to see you back on the bike and good luck with the uh, media career as well. Thanks very much. Thanks. Whoever ends up wearing yellow in Paris, it would appear to be a mathematical certainty that Peter Sagan will be dressed in green for the sixth time. Along with his three world championships, it's a remarkable feat for a relatively young rider. British author John Deering has just finished writing a book with Sagan, which he says is not an autobiography, but is very much Sagan's book. Peter and his guys didn't want to do an autobiography because they felt that 27 is too young for an autobiography, despite... Wayne Rooney doing half a dozen or so. It's something to do when you pack up the auto. But they did think that a book about what it's like to have been world champion for three years was was worth doing. Uh, And then my involvement was mainly because they knew there would have to be a lot of cycling in it compared to your usual sporting autobiography because it wasn't going to be about his childhood and stuff like that. It would be a lot of bike racing in it. And they liked the um, book I'd done with Sean Yates. I did his auto about uh, four, four or five years ago. Um, so, the, and that had a lot of racing in it, basically, which which they liked. And then I was available and I was cheap. So, when you get a job like this, how do you actually sort of go about um, working out? The voice, as it were, you know, how, how do you know how to write something like this? So it sounds as though it's coming from Peter Sagan. Just have to hang out with him, really, I think. And it's, and it's quite interesting. You, you, you do have to change it a bit. So Peter is a really funny bloke, but it's not in... You could quote him and it wouldn't sound particularly funny a lot of the time. He's just... He's always playing with you a little bit, you know. It's just got the eyebrows slightly raised. So I've, I actually had to... Yeah, well... I didn't have to. I, I thought it was a good idea. I put some jokes in to show that he's funny. He didn't, you know, because it just comes across as dull without it. But that's not what his voice is, you know. So how much time did you actually get to spend with, uh, with him? Um, so we were in Sierra Nevada for training camp for about, I think it was about three weeks. And during that time we went to Slovakia and back as well. And I wasn't embedded with the team. I was staying at the bottom of the mountain, they stay at the top, so I would see him if I needed to see him during the day. So I did most of it on the Slovakia trip. It was a great idea that Gabrielli, his manager, had. He said, look, they were flying there and back on a little plane to do a load of business stuff. He said, that is three and a half hours. That is going to be gold time. And so it proved it was just me, Peter and Gabrielli. In fact, I met Peter at five o'clock in the morning at Granada Airport. To fly, so yeah, flew from London to Granada to fly to Bratislava, which was all a bit weird, but it was a great idea. Um, and then, then I was, I was thinking, it's five o'clock in the morning. I don't even know if this bloke wants to do this, but where he's been talked into it by, by his management team or somebody. But uh, I was ready for him to just sleep the whole way, you know, or, or just be rude. Um, it's just great. He's re- really, really friendly, really helpful. Got on a plane. He said, right, what do you want to talk about first? And we talked all the way. There, we had two days there where we talked all the time and then all the way back. And I, I probably, if I look at my notebook, I reckon I've probably got three quarters of the book done. 
not three quarters of the book done, but three quarters of the interviewing done in those two or three days, really. So we're all sort of familiar with what Sagan is like in public, on mm. the podium, in TV interviews, etc. What's he like when the cameras are off? What's he like in private? He's a really nice man. He's a really um, caring sort of fellow. He's got time for everybody, which doesn't necessarily sit with the rock star image, I don't think. Yeah, I, he's the sort of bloke who say, are you OK, do you want a drink? And then he won't send somebody to get the drink, he'll go and get the drink and bring it back for you. You know, he's that sort of bloke. Always takes an interest, remembers what you said to him last time. And uh, interviewing him is, is really good fun because he asks you as many questions. You know, you have a proper conversation with him. And his control of language is amazing. Saw him do... They were doing something for the fan club or the team were inviting... Uh, fans to go to Innsbruck for the Worlds and he just with his press manager uh, Pierre just said right can you do one for the Scandinavians he did it in English he said right now do one for the Dutch he did it in Dutch and just straight off so he didn't have to have a script you know once they decided what he was going to say he was just able to do it back to back in six different languages so Do you get the impression that he's very aware of the image he has and he's sort of in control of it? Absolutely yeah he really is in control of it. Um, it was sort of thrust upon him pretty early as well, and he was clearly... He had to grow up pretty fast, I think. I think the 28-year-old Peter now is extreme, probably extremely different from the 22-year-old Peter, but there's enough of the 22-year-old Peter remaining to keep him fun, you know? Because he's always... If you look back at the stories of him as a mountain biker, there's always been that sort of edge of eccentricity about yeah. him as he always stood out. Yeah, and he... He just—he doesn't necessarily accept things, you know. He'd go, he'd go his own way, and most of the things that he did that seemed crazy at first, you know. I mean, everybody's riding downhill on the on the top tube these days, aren't they? And they, everybody laughed at that when he was first doing it. And there's a few things that he does like that. And he—I'll give you a good example. People say he goes downhill like a madman. He says, "I am absolutely the opposite to a madman. I know exactly what my bike can do." Nobody else trains downhill. And why not? You know, you go out of your way, spend all those time riding up mountains to save a few seconds, and then you lose them on the downhill because you don't bother training on them. He says, when I go through a corner faster than everybody else, it's because I know how fast I can go because I've tried it. That said, when he won that first Worlds in Richmond with the attack downhill, he said, I, I knew exactly how, how far it would go, and I went quite a bit further than that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he's got a few things like that that... He, oh, what's the best way of saying it? Oh, he's a maverick. But he is, he, he's not accepting of stuff. He'll, he'll, he'll test it for himself. So this is his... It's not an autobiography, but it's kind of the yeah, first... Is, yeah, yeah, it's his first uh, first book of this sort. Yeah. Uh, there's presumably a few more to come. Well, I think he's planning one more at the end. I have to see what he thinks of this one, see if I get that one or not, you know. But he's planning to be around for a few more years yet, then? Yeah, I, he is, but he could be quite impetuous. He's, definitely, he's come very close to packing up a couple of times. So that his first season at Tinkov, when he had some problems, he's like, right, that's it, I'm packing in. And that his manager persuaded him to stay to the end of the season. He said, you might as well, you know, it's a lot of money, set your family up, just, you know, just, just ride your bike. And he said, pretty much from that moment, he changed his mind. The second he went back to just riding his bike, he was happy again, you know. But, yeah, there are times when he... And he also says, I'm never going to ride a bike again. When, when I pack up, that'll be it for me, which I don't believe for one second. Oh, he probably won't ever race, but he won't be like Yates doing time trials with his brothers and sons on a Tuesday night. He'll, but he loves mountain biking still, where they live. Him and his mates 
you know, mountain bikes in the back of the Jeep up to the top of the mountains behind Monte Carlo and just blasting it. Can't see him ever not doing that. And when's the book out? Uh, first week in October in this country. They've sold, I don't know, they've sold untold translations in other countries, which are, I guess take a bit longer but yeah one comes out then so it's time now to catch up with desire editor Stuart Clatt now Stuart you've been on your travels you've been to oh Vienna well that means nothing to me oh I saw what you did there and I liked what you did there yeah I have I've been in I've been in Vienna I don't know whether like our listeners they also read the website I'm sure but I reviewed a kit by this very young cycling company called brilliant unicorn and in the article i talk about i don't understand them but i like them and there's a good vibe going on with them anyway so they dropped me in line and said why don't you come over and stay at our hotel this is a cycling brand with a hotel it started off as a hotel the hotel's called briantengrund two guys so marvin and christian are the guys behind brilliant unicorn or bbuc they bought this hotel and the hotel has been all sorts of things in the past. At one point, it was a monastery. It's a really old building, as a lot of Vienna is. They've done it in their unique style. So there's a, there's a hotel, and then there's apartments the other side. The design of the rooms are all like their kit. So have that block colorway on a lot of the stuff and pastel pinks. And that's where the pink came in from with Brilliant Unicorn, BBUC, the... That, that pink, they were worried about when they first did it. So I was like, oh, you know, we, we're doing a bit of pink. Is people going to, it's how you associate that colour with other cycling brands or the leader's jersey of the Giro d'Italia. But it's actually the colour of the hotel when they got there. It was all this weird, you know, strange old colour pink everywhere. And their logo is like, uh, like arches. And that's, you know, that's how the front, the style of the, the building is, the hotel. And... So they launched the brand. So Brilliant Unicorn, Briantengrund, the hotel. But the unicorn was a fixed gear reference because they did, they rode Red Hook Crit and stuff like that. And they're incredible, really good, strong riders. They're into skateboarding back in the day, which sort of kind of, I get that from when you go and stay with them. It's like they're not like a cycling brand that we're all used to. Um, it's not very traditional in the sense that, say, they launch, they don't launch like a spring-summer campaign. They do drops, a bit like Supreme and Stussy and like skate brands do, streetwear brands. So people buy into these limited runs and then they wait, you know, a month or two and then another one will come out. So what's Vienna like as a cycling destination? Because you don't think of it as somewhere where you would normally go cycling. No, you don't. In fact, Brilliant Unicorn have got this hashtag with Vienna sucks for cycling. And uh, it's deeply ironic. It's incredible. 10K and you're in um, the Viennese like, forest. It's not, it's not mountainous, which I was kind of expecting mountainous, but... It's not. I mean, the climbs are still 20 minutes long, so that's a decent that's a decent climb by anyone's standard, really. And beyond the, the forest, it's like rolling countryside. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. We did a, a cobble climb that was like about 5K long into the forest, and it was, yeah, it's terrific. Real fantastic place to ride. Um, and as well as that, afterwards, what you've got is you're in a city with things to do other than that you go to Mallorca and places like that and you have fantastic riding fantastic roads but you've got restaurants and that's it but with this you've got museum well I mean when we were there um, we had a there was a 
there was a dance music festival which we attended most nights. And that's why I'm feeling a bit ropey today. Now, we've had uh, weeks of 30-degree temperatures here in the UK. How, you, how have you been coping with that, Stu? Um, mainly, mainly unzipping my jersey, trying to channel Alberto Contador. Actually, coming back from Vienna to the UK was a bit of a shock to the system. And Vienna was baking up when we got there. When we left, a storm came and cooled down. It's the first time I've ever got off an aeroplane and it had been hotter at home than it was from where I came from. Now, would you like to hear what our correspondent Brian Holm, uh, Quickstep DS, uh, thinks about hot weather? Because that's what he's talking about this, uh, this month. I'll listen to anything Brian Holm wants to say. Would you like to hear his bonkers theme tune as well? Uh, yes, please. I've, uh, I've, I've been humming it in the shower ever since I heard it on the last podcast. <laughs> I really convinced myself when I was younger. I loved rain, I loved snow, icy roads, and I hated hot weather. I just hated it. I still don't like it. I would never ever go on holiday on a hot place. It's just, I don't like when it's warm. I don't like training in the warm. I'd rather go to Scotland <laughs> riding in, in the rain. But of course, our cyclists is different. But, but for sure, pure performance, as a cyclist, I would never perform really good in hot weather. I mean, your cycling shoes would burn like irons under your feet, and I couldn't breathe, and uh, I just needed water, 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 and always got cramps. Of course, I have to be when it's too hot. We did Tour of California a few years back. It was very, very warm. Uh, Peter Seri, he was like unconscious on the road, and you have to see then you need a good doctor to say, okay, it's guys, now it's too dangerous. It's not good for the health of the riders. When you're really crashing, and you got burned on your back, then it's because it's too hot. I got my colleague, Wilfred Peters, when uh, Peter Seri, he collapsed on the road. Was, I think it was about one kilometer to go, and he really, like, fainted. And my colleague was sitting, it was, even in the team car was hot, so we wrote Peters jumping out of the car with no shoes on, and he burned his feet because, like, like, the the tarmac the asphalt was really burning and he was like jumping around like <laughs> like like an engine with blisters on his feet so a certain level your level you have to say enough is enough brian home and if you like his theme tune and who doesn't you should know it's by power solo and it's called boom baba do badaba Come on, let's get it to Christmas number one. And you can see Brian Home in person at the Ruler Classic event, November the 1st to the 3rd in London, along with Eddie Merckx, Paolo Bettini, Maurizio Fondrist and many more. Early bird tickets still available, but not for much longer. That's it from this podcast. Thanks to Hannah Troop for joining me. Catch up soon. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Planning for your next trip? 
elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.